Good, after good morning, everybody. I'm usually speaking in the afternoon. This is not normal for me, so bear with me as I get used to this. Well, it's been a long time since I was here. It has been uh, three years since I last was speaking at Advent Hope. And of course, at that point, you weren't even in this building. You were still at Burden Hall. So uh, I've never actually set foot in this building in my life. So this is actually uh, quite interesting to see the new facilities and all that sort of thing. Um, how many were here for my last presentation three years ago? About uh, maybe 40%, all right. It was a presentation that dealt with creation and evolution and the ways that the animal world reveals to us information that we never probably thought we could get from that source. Normally when we talk about creation and evolution, we look at it from fossil records or from various different scientific studies of sedimentation rate and various different uh, uh, very specialized sciences like that. But with the animals, sometimes we tend to ignore that because uh, what can the animals tell us about the natural world and the way that creation and evolution works? And so that's what we talked about last time. And we looked at the animal world to find ways that they were uh, specialized, complicated, very intricate, and the ways that those things reveal a very intelligent designer, the intelligent designer of the Bible, God who created all life on earth in the beginning, and how it doesn't support the ideas of evolution. Evolution has a lot of ideas and theories that the animal world in and of itself does not in any way support when you look at the ways these animals are put together. So that's what we talked about last time, and we're going to be continuing on with that today, the sequel to that in a way, because we're going to be looking at more animals and more ways that animals are put together, both physically and mentally, to see how they are a living testimony of God's wonder and design. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at individual species and groups of animals to see what we can learn. And we're going to be doing this all day because uh, we're going to be having meetings in the afternoon and we'll, tell, we'll talk about that at, a little bit later. So what I'm going to do to start out is I'm going to read from the verse in scripture that I finished last presentation with. We're going to go to Job 12, verse 7. And this is what was the theme of last, um, pre, uh, last time's presentation. It was kind of the summation of what we were talking about, and it is the theme of today's as well, so that's where we're going to start. Job chapter 12, verse 7. But ask now the beasts, and they shall teach thee, and the fowls of the air, and they shall tell thee. Or speak to the earth, and it shall teach thee, and the fishes of the sea shall declare unto thee. Who knoweth not in all these that the hand of the Lord hath wrought this, in whose hand is the soul of every living thing? and the breath of all mankind. In child guidance, we have the passage from Ellen White next to the Bible, nature is to be our great lesson book. So today's uh, theme is nature. You already got started with nature this morning. We're gonna continue that right now because it's all about nature today. So what I'm gonna do now, first of all, is how many here are familiar with the term intelligent design? All right, most of you, that's good. That's a very important uh, topic that everybody needs to know because it is very important in our society today, in our scientific circles. Intelligent design is the ideas by scientists that nature is too well designed to be anything but intelligently designed. It cannot be the result of chaos and chance and random selection. 
And massive uh, works have been done in this area that you're probably familiar with. This has been come to court cases. This has become a public school issue, intelligent design, in various places where uh, intelligent design has been uh, tried to be in instituted. And so intelligent design is a very important, familiar concept that we as Adventists can use because the scientists doing these studies are basically giving us information that we can use to promote creationism. It's very much, it's very important to us to be able to have this information available. But there is one area of intelligent design that comes up short. When you talk to someone who supports the ideas of intelligent design and you ask that person, who is the intelligent designer? What is the force that is creation, that is responsible for this creation? And at that point, the system tends to break down. At that point, you'd have a blank look on the face because they do not want to answer that question. Most intelligent design scientists will say, that's not my field, I don't have any idea, that's not something I can study, therefore I'm not going to uh, speak to that. And so it kind of leaves a question mark at the end of their, of their sentences because they have no really strong answer to that that they're willing to share. Whether they hold something privately or not, I have no idea, but publicly they will not share any answer to that question. And so that's a, that's a missing link in their presentation, to borrow a phrase, because when we think about it, we need to be promoting who the intelligent designer is, not just the fact that it's intelligently designed. We need to be able to say that, yes, God made everything that we see around us, God made it special, and here is the evidence for that. And here in the scripture, in Genesis, we have a record of how he did it. And to leave that part out is only to give half the message. We need to give the whole message in order to be able to really do our job as Adventist witnesses of creation. We can't just say it's intelligently designed. We need to say who the designer is. So what I'm doing today is a little bit different than last time. Because last time when I talked about the animals, I was specifically using illustrations from the animal world that refute the ideas of evolution, that make evolution look pretty silly in many ways. But today we're not going to do that because I feel that sometimes we get a little bit too negative, we get a little bit too anti-evolution because it's always easy to poke holes in evolution. But a lot of time we tend to miss the point where we need to be promoting God and promoting creation. And so today's meeting is going to be showing ways that animals are well designed in order to show God's power and God's creation and the way he makes animals very special. So what we're going to do now is we're going to get into the main presentation, get off this slideshow. And we will get into the, the main section of what we're doing. Also going to get it onto a uh, different setting so we can watch the videos. There we go. Oh, is that box going to go away? There we go. All right. So we're going to start out with a bird that you may never have seen because if you haven't been to the East Coast, because the only places this bird lives in America is in the southeastern part of the United States. This is called an anhinga. And it is a water bird, and it's very common along the Florida swamps and, and Everglades and whatnot. And it has a very distinctive lifestyle that you may not be familiar with because there's no other bird quite like it in North America. They are found throughout the world. There's a variety of species. We only have one in North America. This one right here is called an African darter. It's found in uh, Africa. It's uh, called darter in most every other place in the world, but in America we call them anhingas. Here's one who has built a very bulky stick nest in the Everglades of Florida. 
And so now these birds live near water always because that's where they get their food. They will dive underwater and swim around and catch their fish underneath the water's surface, and that's how they find their, their food for, their, for a living. But something very strange about this bird, when you think of a water bird who gets into the water, it immediately will sit there on the water surface floating away because they're very buoyant. But as you will see with this bird, that's not what happens. They get into the water and they immediately sink underneath the water's surface. And they are not floating on the surface at all, and usually only their head and neck will be protruding above the water's surface. And so this is a very unusual lifestyle for a water bird that we look at and go, that's a very strange looking system. And in fact, when they get into the water, you will see that they immediately sink beneath the water's surface. He sees a fish down under the water's surface there. And then he will step into the water, and immediately he is underneath the water's surface without any buoyancy whatsoever. He, this allows him to very easily move amongst the rocks and underwater vegetation without uh, having to constantly fight and kick like a duck would to get underneath the water's surface where you can see his food. And so he's very well built and very well designed to be able to swim underneath the water's surface in this way. Check for danger. Now, the problem with this is, the reason for this is because their feathers do not have the same water coating protection that other ducks and water birds have. And why is that? Because they do not have the same oils that they coat their feathers with that would then waterproof their feathers. Normally a bird, when it waterproofs its feathers, makes them very water resistant, so water rolls off a duck's back. That's why you have that expression. But these birds do not have those water-resistant oils, and so they do not have the ability to water coat their feathers, and therefore they sink immediately. Their water soaks into their feathers, and they are then able to sink underneath the water's surface and move around very easily. Now the trouble with that is when they get out of the water after they've finished fishing, they need to dry off. Their feathers are soaking wet, and they can't even fly because they're so waterlogged. So they have to spread their wings in the sun, let it dry off for half an hour, hour, depending on how long it takes. And at the end of that period, then they can fly off and resume their normal airborne existence. If a predator comes along during this time, they have to dive into the water and swim away because they have no way of flying off. And so this is a very specific, unusual lifestyle for a water bird. Cormorants do a little bit of this, but not quite as much. And so why does this bird not have the oils? Well, because it helps it to be able to swim around in this way. So in this bird, we have kind of the reverse of what we were talking about last time and what we'll be talking about a lot today, where God gives a, a specific trait or a physical um, ability to a bird or a mammal or a reptile. This is something taken away. The oil of the feathers is not there. And so it's kind of the same thing in reverse, where God has removed something from this species in order to give it a specialized ability that other birds around it would not have. So this is kind of to get us started to show how an individual animal will have a trait or will be missing a trait that makes it unique and special and that's what makes it uh, able to function in its particular habitat and survive where it happens to live. Now blister beetles are a group of beetles found throughout the world. They're a, a specific family of beetles and when we look at them they will be, be fairly ordinary looking a lot of the time but uh, they have a very specific ability to play with chemistry. Now, last time we talked about the bombardier beetle and how they are such a wonderful testimony to God's creative power. And these guys will do the same thing, play with chemistry, but in a completely different way. These guys have the ability to exude a dark 
oily fluid out of the joints of their legs or out of uh, places on their body that is so filled with toxic chemicals that any predator coming along to eat them will be so totally freaked out that he will run away and not want anything to do with it because it's so toxic and so unpleasant and so is very much a repellent to all the other predatory creatures that would try to eat this particular beetle. And so they come in a variety of sizes and colors. A lot of them are brightly colored. A lot of them really stand out because they are trying to let predators know that I'm toxic, you don't want to mess with me. And so this is something that uh, is very much an advertisement on their part to let predators know, leave me alone. And so you have a lot of brightly colored ones, reds, orange, yellows, all sorts of interesting contrasting markings. These guys right here are found in Anza Borrego De uh, Desert State Park just south of here. And when they come out, they come out by the thousands, eating every last little flower they can find on the uh, blooming shrubs in the springtime. Very abundant creature. This one right here is um, maybe the most typical of all the ones because this is, has the one that exudes the most oil, the most fluid that helps repel predators. This is found in the eastern United States. And they are so large and bulky that they can't fly. They only crawl around on the surface of the uh, ground through the leaves of the forest, and they are extremely uh, bulky and cumbersome. But they don't need to worry about escaping predators because their toxic chemicals defend themselves so well that they are able to crawl around without anybody bothering them whatsoever. This one right here is why we get the name blister beetle, because this fluid that they exude, if it comes in contact with our skin, will form an allergic reaction blister-like um, bump on our fingers, and that's why we have given them the name blister beetle. And we've applied it to the whole group of beetles, even though this, there's only a very few that will cause that allergic reaction with us and give us a blister. But uh, that's how they get their name. Now this one right here is found on the Imperial Sand Dunes, um, just to the southeast of here on the border of Nevada and California. These are fairly common down there. As you're walking across the dunes in the middle of nowhere down there, you will come across these beetles scuttling across the surface of the dunes, and they will be solid black because their wings are down. And when they see you, at that point, they raise up their wing cases, these covers up here, exposing their bright red underside of, on their abdomen, and thereby warning, again, a potential predator, I'm dangerous, I'm toxic, leave me alone. And so these guys will then race away at full speed across the desert sands, and it's quite humorous to see half a dozen of them scattering from you, all of them with their wings raised, showing off their bright red abdomens as they dash away to other places. This one right here is one of the strangest of all blister beetles. This is found in Texas and is a very bloated looking one. It's called the inflated blister beetle. And you can see this beautiful metallic um, coating to its wings, but it, those are not its wings. Those are the wing cases that cover the wings. And inside those big wing cases are, is his abdomen, but it's a very small little abdomen, just normal size abdomen. It's not a big bloated um, case like that. Those are just an overhang of the abdomen. The reason for this is because in the hot desert sun of our southwest, when the sun is burning down upon the sand, it is very difficult for these creatures to be able to function in the heat of the day. And so most animals that live in the desert will go away and hide during the heat of the day. But thanks to the inflated um, body cases of these blister beetles, they're able to actually function in the middle of the heat of the day because it acts like an umbrella. If you carry an umbrella over your head through the middle of the desert, the sun will be kept off of you and you will not overheat as quickly as if you were completely exposed to the sun. And so these wing cases actually do the same thing. They form a little barrier that the sun will bounce against and then re reflect. This one here is found here in California. And then they will then protect the inner sensitive abdomen from overheating. 
And so because of that, this is one of the few creatures to be able to be active in the middle of the heat of the hot, hot desert summer days. And they're able to then function in times when other insects would not be able to function. So again, we have a case here where God has made all of these very different beetles very special, each in their own niche, each in their own way, and as an example of how a diversity of creatures is found in even one group of animals, a group of beetles, and they all have different traits and different abilities and different ways of functioning, and God has made each of them in a very special way to allow them to live in their particular habitat. Now, hippos are a very familiar animal. Now, one thing is you will notice as I go through my presentations, I tend to pick animals that are unusual, that are not something most people have heard of. I like to find animals that you're not going to see if by just turning on PBS at night. I like to find the strange creatures that most people have never seen. Now, this obviously is one we are all familiar with, and so this kind of breaks that rule. But the hippos are an amazing animal that we sometimes take for granted because we see them all the time in zoos and nature programs, and so how special can they be? But hippos are amazing creatures when you look at their traits and the abilities God has given them. To start with, they're huge. When we look at a hippo, okay, it's a big animal. We sometimes don't realize how big it is. A female hippo will get up to 4,000 pounds. And that's not very big when you consider that the male hippo will get up to 8,000 pounds. That is, in fact, one of the largest land mammals anywhere in the world. It's probably third on the list of land mammals in terms of bulk and size. And so these guys are just incredibly enormous animals. Now, they rest in the water all day. They're taking their weight off their feet. They're just floating in the water, so it doesn't really matter. And they're able to just float around during the middle of the day. Now, that's a great lifestyle for these guys, except for one thing. You notice, of course, that there's no hair on their body. There's no protective, any kind of uh, shielding to protect them from the midday sun. And so they're very sensitive to being sunburned. Same as if you go to the beach and lay in the water all day, you're going to get sunburned if you don't take precautions. So they're laying out here in the sun, and you will notice that their face is very distinctive. They have their ears, their eyes, and their nose all at the top of their head. So they can sit as much of their body as they possibly can underneath the water surface, protecting it from the sun, and just expose bare minimum and still be able to hear and see and smell what's going on around them. They communicate with each other using a deep, rumbling groan that is able to travel many miles through the water. And so they're able to actually communicate with other hippos all the way down the river system, depending on what they're needing to say to each other. So now these guys laying in the water are not eating. They are sitting there all day, just kind of goofing off, hanging around, waiting for nighttime to come, because at nighttime is when they are actually going to go feed and get themselves some food. They do not eat the water plants in the river. They wait until dark, sun goes down, gets cooler, they come up out of the water's surface, and then take off looking for grass to eat. These guys are basically a giant cow. They will walk along until they find grass. If it's by the riverbank, that's fine. If it's a ways away, they're going to have to go farther. And if they sometimes will travel many miles till they reach a place where there's green vegetation available, green grass. Once they get to the green grass, they're going to start to munch on the green grass, and they will eat all night until they've eaten around 150 pounds of vegetation per hippo per night. And when they've done that, then they come back and, and wall around in the day um, in, this, in the water again. So it's a very laid-back lifestyle for these guys who don't really have a lot to worry about. And most predators are, no, there's no chance of it being attacked by predators, and so it's not too much stress for these guys. 
They have very strong teeth that they use to grind their food. It's basically, you know, grinding teeth to get the, uh, the tough uh, grass and, and uh, grassland veg vegetation in their mouth. And their teeth can keep growing their whole life. So they're actually constantly growing like a rodent almost, where they're just, they never stop growing, and so they can be worn down. The males, which have these enormous tusks, can get up to 20 inches long, the teeth in their mouth, which they use to defend themselves and, uh, and uh, territorial combat and that sort of thing. So these guys are now coming back, laying around in the water. Now the one thing you notice when they're laying in the water, they're still exposed on the top of their back. You know, they can't be completely underwater. And so they have to worry still about being sunburned. Now here's where something really special that we only figured out a few years ago kicks in. There is a pink oily fluid that is given off by the pores of the skin of the hippo all over its body. This kind of oozes out. Now this pink fluid coats their skin and scientists have studied this fluid and analyzed it and found that it has the capability to block ultraviolet light. And so just like when you put on some sunscreen on your arm to protect your arm from being sunburned, these hippos are basically coating themselves with their own sunscreen so that they will not be burned by the summer sun and they're not going to get sunburned skin. So here we have this little minor thing, a little fluid coming out, which is absolutely crucial to this animal to be able to function properly. And scientists said, okay, what else does this stuff do? So they studied it some more. And they found out that not only does it block ultraviolet light, but it also is an antibiotic. And so it fights off infection upon the skin of these hippos because there's no way for these guys to groom themselves. And so they have to keep themselves from getting some kind of skin infection or having problems that uh, would develop. And so this fluid not only blocks the sun, but it also fights off any kind of bacteria or any kind of thing that's going to come along and give them problems. So when we look at the hippo, we are seeing one of the most amazingly built creatures we could imagine with some traits that we never dreamed possible and how much other things do we not even know about with animals that we haven't discovered yet. And here we have an example of God making a totally familiar animal that we are, see all the time. He may has made them into one of the most amazing animals we could look at anywhere in the natural world. Now, the hippos are an animal we're all familiar with. Now I'm gonna show you an animal that I can almost guarantee that nobody here is familiar with, that nobody has ever heard of or seen at all, because this is an extremely uh, secretive little creature found in the Eastern United States, found in the Great Plains, found hiding underneath rocks, logs, places where you're not likely to see it if unless you're really looking for it, like I tend to do, that's what I do. I'm looking for the creatures hiding away where they, nobody else can uh, really want to take the time to look for them. And this little creature is at full size, one inch long. Tiny little toad sitting underneath a rock in the middle of the eastern forest or grassland. Now, you'll notice it doesn't really look quite like a frog that you're used to. It doesn't really look like a toad that you're used to. And so it's called a narrow-mouthed frog. Sometimes it's called a narrow-mouthed toad. Scientists don't even themselves can uh, know what to call it because it has a lot of weird traits that no other frog or toad has. You will notice that it's um, got a little kind of a pointed snout up here, and that's because it has a narrow mouth. That's how it gets its name. And it's uh, just a little plump a little fellow sitting underneath a log like I found it here. Now, at the same place that I found this guy, when I turned the rock over, I also found this, an ant colony, because this is exactly what the 
narrow-mouthed toad wants to eat. This is his sole source of food. And so he finds some shelter by an ant colony and sets up shop, and that's where he is going to live his whole life as long as the ant supply lasts, which is pretty easy to do because ants are very common and easily available. So they are eating the ants, they're eating the larva and pupa of the ants, and so it's plenty of food, but you don't need a big mouth for that, so they have a very small mouth, and that's why they have the name narrow-mouthed toad. Now, ants will defend themselves, and that's where we're going to get into the special trait that these animals have. But first, one thing more about these little guys, they are very solitary animals. You find one here, one over there, you know, if you're very lucky, you're never going to find too many of them at once, except for one situation. In the springtime, if you go out to a swamp and a place where there's a lot of runoff from springtime in the eastern United States, you will sit, sit, stand there and you all of a sudden hear a very strange call surrounding you. And all of a sudden you realize you're surrounded by hundreds of narrow-mouthed toads. And now we're going to listen to a few of those calls because it's one of the strangest calls you could ever hear. This is the mating calls of the narrow-mouthed toad. <laughs> and if you don't find this to be particularly appealing as a mating call, then you are not a narrow-mouthed toad. <laughs> when I was standing at this spot where we took this picture, listening to those calls that we recorded, we were surrounded by hundreds of them. Literally hundreds of these toads were all around us in the swamp. I looked for about an hour and I could never find a one. They throw their voice, they hide out on the water surface, they float around nooks and crannies, and they are just the most secretive, impossible to find creatures you can ever imagine. So even when they're abundant, they're impossible to really study or watch because they are, are so secretive and they have such a strange, amazing ability to hide out from detection. And so your best chance of finding them is under their normal home underneath their log if you happen to turn over the right log. Now, what is special about these guys that really is different from any other toad or frog that you could possibly imagine? This is something that we has just been learned again in the last few decades. This is an, a truly an amazing thing that is unique to this particular creature. Now, remember what I said, they eat ants, and ants, of course, are going to defend themselves by biting and stinging, depending on the species. And so at this point, you would think that that would be sufficient to drive this toad away. It's not going to mess with any kind of biting and stinging. But for some reason, they don't seem to mind when the ants are biting them or trying to bite them on their legs or their back or anything. It doesn't seem to phase them. They're apparently uh, not able to penetrate their skin or something. We're not sure, but it doesn't seem to bother them. But the one area where these guys are sensitive is their eye. They do not like to have their eye bothered by an ant. They don't want it biting, stinging, attacking their eyeball. And so at this point now is where they have something very special. You notice right here there is a weird little roll of skin all the way across from one side of their head to the other. And in fact, that's exactly what it is. The skin actually rolls up over onto, on top of itself. It's actually overlapping. And these guys have the ability to pull that flap of skin forward so that it actually covers up their eyes and actually shields their eyes from attack. They can use it like a windshield wiper to knock away ants, to clear away debris, and to protect their eyes from being bitten and attacked by these ants as they are trying to defend their colony. 
And so you have a very specific and unique gift given to this particular species. Without a doubt, this is a perfect example of the little known miracles of God's creation. Because stuff like this, we're just discovering in these tiny little animals around the world that they have some of the most amazing skills and abilities that we could ever imagine given to them by God. Now, fish are a huge group of creatures. When we look at the fish world, we are looking at half of the vertebrate animals in the world. Because when we look at all mammals, all birds, all reptiles, and all amphibians put together, we do not have as many species as there are fish. Fish are enormously uh, diverse. They have the most amazing sizes, shapes, colors, forms you could possibly imagine. Some of them are saltwater, some of them are freshwater, and they inhabit every nook and cranny that you could ever imagine in any water area in, throughout the world, whether it's the top of a mountain stream or the depths of the ocean. You have fish of one type or another. This is one of the very strange ones found in the deep ocean areas where it walks around on these uh, these fins, and it is called a walking batfish, and it has all these weird, strange projections and whatnot. And so fish can come in some of the strangest shapes and colors and sizes you can imagine. Now, when we look at the fish world, a lot of times we fall into the trap of thinking that these guys are very dull, listless animals. They don't have a lot of emotion. They don't have a lot of intelligence. They don't have a lot of feeling because they just kind of swim around in whatever nook or cranny they have, and they don't seem to react very much to any kind of uh, stuff that we do to them. They don't seem to communicate to each other. And so we have a very kind of disregard for the fish world as kind of one of the kind of pointless groups of animals out there. But more scientists study, the more they figure out about these animals, the more intricate they have turned out to be, and in fact have turned out to be one of the most amazingly built creatures around. They all have very sensitive abilities to allow them to function in their watery world, to be able to move around. One thing all fish have in common is called a lateral line. This is a line that basically runs along their entire side of their body. In this one right here, you can see it visible there. Some of them it's very easily visible, some of it's almost impossible to see, but all fish have it. This is a series of pockets along the side of their skin which actually will register vibrations in the water so that anything that is swimming around in the water, any movement of the water currents around them will actually register on their skin and they can then move around often in pitch darkness or in very murky conditions, and these lateral lines will allow them to know when they're about to run into something, when they're about to be chased by a predator, all this sort of thing, they can then register using this lateral line. They also have the ability to smell. All fish can smell to one degree or another, and they have a very sensitive ability in this regard that allows them to function in this way. But one thing that a lot of fish have in common are these weird little barbels that stick around the face of a variety of species of fish. Here in this one, you can see it sticking out on the upper lip. On the other ones, you can see it on the lower lip. Right here, it sticks out here. And this is something a lot of fish have. And these are basically the same as whiskers on a mammal. They basically are feeling touch, that they can then feel what is going on around them and know if they're about to bump into something. They can use it to uh, figure out what is the, in, right in front of their face. And so this allows them to be able to move around. This one right here is called a drum, and it has a whole little forest of little projections on its lower chin, which it is able to run through the gravel and the mud and know what is edible and know what is uh, able to be eaten in front of it. So these are very touch sensitive, same as your fingers, where they're able to feel what is going on around them. They don't have any hands, they don't have any paws or anything 
like that. So they have to have some way of feeling what is going on in front of their face. Now this one right here is called a sturgeon. Now there's not too many species of sturgeon in the world, but they have a very specific and special way of sensing what is going on around them. They have these same kind of feelers here from their upper lip, and they have a set of four of them. And these can touch in the same way as the other feelers that we've been looking at, but more than that, they have the ability to sense chemicals. They have what are called chemoreceptors covering these tentacles, and with it they can sense any kind of chemical in the water that's at a very, dilute, uh, very uh, diluted uh, percentage in the water. And so they can tell if there's something dangerous approaching, toxic, if there's food available in the area, they can then move toward or away from whatever they need to do using these chemical reception uh, ability on their upper lip feelers. But now the most sensitive and the most uh, amazingly built of all the sensory fish are the catfish. Now catfish come in a wide variety of forms. They are one of the largest families of fish anywhere in the world. They're found in freshwater and saltwater. Some of the jungle rivers in South America are mostly species of catfish of one form or another. And so you have a huge variety of different sizes, shapes, colors, and forms. But the one thing they all have in common is they have whiskers, and that's why they're called a catfish, because they all have a series of whiskers, sometimes two, sometimes four, sometimes six or more, that allows them to feel what is going on around them. So now these are very sensitive whiskers, just like a cat moving through the dark uses its whiskers to know when it's about to bump into something, these guys are able to do the same thing. They also have chemoreceptors, like the sturgeon. They can sense chemicals with their feelers and know when danger is approaching and know when food is coming near and, th and they use it this way very much. But it has one more set of sensors on these tentacles that the other fish do not have. Now, when we taste our food, we have taste buds in one place and one place only on our tongue and our mouth. However, catfish have those same types of taste buds on their whiskers outside their face. So they can feel with their whisker anything around them and know what it tastes like before they ever put it in their mouth. Now, this seems amazing enough, and this is like, okay, that's pretty weird, but not only do they have taste buds on their whiskers, but they have it on their face, and they have it on their fins, and they have it on their tail, and they have it on their whole body. There are taste buds all over the surface of this fish. All he has to do is rub up a fin, rub up his tail, rub up his body against any food object around him, and he knows instantaneously what it tastes like. And so he doesn't have to waste his time if it tastes bad, or he can quickly gobble it down if it tastes good. And so this seems very strange and very foreign to us because we never have any kind of awareness of taste outside of our mouth. And, but these guys are able to taste everything around them very easily without any problem. So the catfish are without a doubt the most specialized of the fish world in terms of their ability to sense what is going on around them in one form or another. So now when we look at the catfish and we look at these other fish, however, there's one more thing that all fish have in common. One thing that I haven't mentioned yet, and that is the ability that all fish have the ability to feel pain. Now, fish are vertebrate animals, the same as reptiles, mammals, birds, and amphibians. All vertebrate animals have a nervous system and a spinal cord and nerve endings in the same way that, they, uh, that we do. And so all fish have the ability to feel any kind of damage done to their bodies, to their 
to their tails, their fins, their mouths, whatever. And this is why fishing is such a cruel and bloodthirsty sport. Because when you're putting a hook into the fish's mouth, you're doing the same thing as if you put a nail into our mouth. And so you're doing as much damage and as much cruelty to them as you would as if you hooked your cat or dog in your backyard and dragged it around to see how much fun that would be. Because these guys have the same sensory perception that all other mammals do. And so that's why I make a big deal about fishing is not a practice that we as Adventists should be paying any attention to because this is something where we're deliberately causing cruelty to those animals out there which are doing us no harm whatsoever and in fact are as sensitive as any other creature that we could possibly imagine. So when we look at the fish world and the ways that they are special, we can see one of the most amazingly built groups of animals God has ever made. He has made them so diverse and so special and so strange that we find an endless source of intellectual and uh, uh, curiosity when we look at these very interesting and different creatures found throughout the world's oceans and freshwater areas. One of the most amazing groups of animals God has ever made. Now, again... Here's some ordinary looking animals, tigers and lions. I don't usually show that kind of animal, but we're gonna be looking at a very strange cat pretty quickly. Here is an ordinary tiger that everybody has seen before, an ordinary lions. And the one thing that they have in common is they're very big. And they are in fact belong to the group of animals called big cats. And so now biologists call them big cats because they're big, but sometimes it gets a little bit more complicated than that. Small cats are usually small, like bobcats and the other animals that uh, around the world, there's a lot of cat species that are very small. But a mountain lion is considered a small cat, even though it's a very big cat. And so this doesn't seem like this makes much sense. There's a lot of internal differences that make scientists class one group of animals um, from a different group from another. One of the interesting things that's kind of fun for the layman to look at is the fact that all big cats can roar, but they cannot purr. While the small cats, like this caracarol, can purr, but they cannot roar. And so that's kind of a, a thing that, uh, that uh, most scientists you know, won't pay attention to, but it's kind of a fun differentiation between the big cats and the large cats. Here again is a big cat, one of the jaguars. And here's another one of the strange ones, the cheetah, which actually blends a lot of the characteristics of both. It's considered a small cat, but it has a lot of characteristics of big cats. But there is one other cat which absolutely stumps scientists. They don't know what to do with this particular animal. It is called the clouded leopard. The clouded leopard is a very rare animal. It's found in Southeast Asia, and it is a very specific habitat of jungle growth. It likes to be up in the treetops. And it is a very small cat. It's, I mean, it's, it's the size of a bobcat, basically. But it is considered neither large cat nor small cat because it has a lot of internal differences that set it apart from all the others. So let's take a look at this very interesting cat. To start with, he's living up in the trees in jungles. He's a very nimble cat. He has a tail that's as long as the rest of his body put together. And he's able to use this long tail to balance himself as he's running through the treetops because he is looking for a specific type of food to eat. He's looking for porcupines. He's looking for monkeys. He's looking for birds. That is what he's out there hunting for. Now, if you're going to be going after nimble animals like monkeys or extremely well-armored animals like porcupines, you're going to have to be able to deal with that sort of defensive armament. You're going to have to be able to somehow be able to overcome those defenses. And so a clouded leopard has a unique gift that only it has left in this world. That is enormously large teeth. When you look at the teeth of this guy, they are the longest teeth to jaw ratio of any cat alive in the world. 
Their teeth are enormously long. It is extremely long, sharp fangs with which they can deal with even a, a uh, porcupine. Here is a skull of a clouded leopard showing how enormous those teeth actually are. The only cat in history which had longer teeth to jaw ratio in the entire history of life on Earth was the saber-toothed cat of prehistory with their enormously long uh, front fangs that they had. And even now we wonder how in the world did those guys even be able to function with such teeth like that? But they somehow were able to do so. Here again is the saber-toothed tiger, the saber-toothed cat. And so now the clouded leopard has the same body size as a bobcat. But a bobcat's teeth are much, much shorter and much, much smaller than a clouded leopard's teeth. And here is a snow leopard, and a snow leopard is much larger than a clouded leopard, and their teeth are still probably not as big even as a clouded leopard's teeth in terms of even actual size, let alone ratio. So these guys are extremely well armored in the mouth. Now, they are running around through the treetops, chasing their prey at full speed. They can run straight down a tree trunk, straight up it at full speed, doesn't matter. They can actually run along the underside of a horizontal limb, on the underside, hanging from the limb at full speed, running along after a monkey or whatever to try to catch it. They are so well balanced with their long tail that they can just nimbly jump between branches up and down sideways everywhere they need to go. And so they're able to do this kind of thing very easily and rapidly. They can even hang by their hind feet from a tree limb upside down with their front feet free so they can grab passing birds as they fly by them. So these guys are an amazingly built creature to move their way through the jungle canopy. Very hard to study, very hard to be able to even observe because they are so secretive and hard to track. Now a question might be asked by some of us that is this really a design of God? These guys are out there killing other animals, and how can that be a design that God put together because that doesn't seem like that makes any sense for God's world? If you want to find out the answer to that, we will be looking at that tonight at six o'clock in our evening program. What are the purpose of the predators? Where did they come from? What is their purpose in God's plan? And how are they supposed to be part of what we're doing now? So what we're going to actually do is we're going to end our meeting now this morning because it's uh, 11 o'clock, and so I'm going to, uh, we're going to finish up this morning. We're going to pick off directly where we left off here at this point. Um, this is not the end of this presentation. We have still have the second half of this presentation to go where we're going to still look at some more animals. We have moved the time up to 4.30 this afternoon because we want to have some time for question and answer after my meeting. And so we're going to actually go from 4.30 to 5.30, have some, or 4.15, have some question and answer time, and then take a little break. And then at 6 o'clock, we'll be starting our last presentation. Now, our last presentation, like I said, will be dealing with the predators. What is the purpose of the predators? We're going to look at the Bible. We're going to look at nature. We're going to look at the spirit of prophecy to see what their role is in God's creation. Are they supposed to be here? Why are they here? How can we relate to them? And what is, our, uh, what is the way that uh, they are, what is their reason for existence? So the first meeting at 4.30 will be a continuation of this. The last meeting will be a brand new meeting that has never been given before anywhere at all. This is the inauguration of this meeting. I've been working on this meeting for the last two years, and I saved it for you guys to make it, uh, do it here for the first time. So I hope you are going to be able to turn out for that one. It is the most important meeting of the day. 
If you can only come to one meeting this afternoon, come to the six o'clock one because it is definitely brand new important stuff that has never uh, been touched upon by most people. We never really talk about this issue. And so this is a very interesting um, sermon we're gonna be looking at tonight. Now, for those of you who remembered my last presentation when I was here, I did uh, uh, this uh, creation presentations in the morning, and for the evening meeting, I did Animals, Ethics, and Christianity. That dealt with our treatment of the animal world, the way that animals are abused by humans, and the ways that we as Adventists have a better responsibility that we need to do to care for those animals that we come in contact, whether it's in our backyard, or on our plate, or in our closet, or wherever they happen to be. And so this is something that we looked at last time to see what the Bible and spirit of prophecy have to say. It's what the topic of my book is, Animals, Ethics, and Christianity. For those of you who come tonight for the evening meeting, we will also be having available those books for free, like we did last time, for those of you who want to pick up a copy of my book that deals with this subject. And so that will be available this evening as well, after the uh, end of the last meeting. We will also have our materials after sundown that we have for sale for those people who want to get a hold of what we're doing here today, because everything you're seeing today is available as DVDs. All the meetings today will be available in high-quality DVDs. So that is something that after sundown will be available, but the books themselves will be free. Now, those of you who remember that sermon uh, might be afraid that tonight's sermon might have some pictures that you don't want to look at. And so I want to assure you that, uh, that tonight's evening meeting will not be in any way graphic or anything like that. It is, it is the same type of presentation as we're doing this morning. It is just about the way that God has made the world and what we can have in it to look at that's beautiful. So we're not going to be dealing with the ugliness of man's abuse of the animal world like we did with last time. I don't apologize for showing those types of pictures because we need to see what is happening in the world if we are going to back away from it and not include ourselves in participating in supporting those types of cruelty. So that is something I feel is very important that we all need to realize what is going on in the world. But today's meetings are not those kind of meetings. So don't feel like you need to stay away in order to avoid any kind of uh, unpleasantness that uh, you might have thought about last time. So tonight's meeting is uh, going to be, like I said, 6 o'clock to 7 o'clock. It will be ending at sundown. We will not be keeping you here past sundown. So we're going to finish up now with a, a final prayer, and we'll finish this thing as we, as we close the morning. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you very much for this opportunity to study your nature and the ways that you have made it special. And we ask for your continued blessing as we witness to each other on the ideas that you have put forth that we need to share. And we ask for your continued help and strength today on this Sabbath day. In Jesus' name, amen.